The scripture this morning is from Psalms 54, verses 1 to 4. Listen to the word. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Men without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Here ends the reading of the word. May you be encouraged by it. Because of the recent events in our country, our scheduled speaker this morning, Dr. Mark Knoll, was unable to make his way to Grove City College. We're grateful, however, that a member of our Grove City College family has agreed to step forward and uh, to be with us and share his thoughts this morning. Uh, Mr. Roger K. Toll graduated from Grove City College with a Bachelor of Arts degree in accounting in 1968. Uh, Upon graduation, he began working for the then Big Eight accounting firm of Haskins and Sells in Pittsburgh. As many other graduates in the late 1960s, He was invited to join the United States Army, where he spent uh, the next two years in Vietnam. From October 1969 to October 1970, he served with the 20th Engineering Brigade in Ben Hoa, South Vietnam, where he was awarded the Bronze Star for meritorious service. Mr. Toll is the Vice President of Financial Affairs here at Grove City College, and we welcome him this morning to the Harbison Chapel pulpit. Mr. Toll. This week has been a very difficult time for our nation and I know personally for many of us who are here in this chapel this morning. We've been attacked as a nation in the most incredible and horrific way. There's absolutely no question in my mind, in the minds of many, that Tuesday's attack was not just warlike, it was an act of war. Accordingly, when I heard yesterday that our scheduled chapel speaker this morning would not be able to be with us, I felt led to offer to share my memories of the Vietnam War with you this morning. Let me start by saying I'm a CPA. I'm not a psychiatrist. That means I can count my memories, but I have no idea why my mind works the way that it does, especially when it comes to memories. But I have to tell you that I find memories fascinating, not just because we remember things, but because of what we remember and how we remember them. I'm sure you've all heard of stories of people remembering significant events in their lives, and maybe you've experienced it yourself. I'm sure that 20 or 30 years from now, everyone in this chapel will remember the events of September 11, 2001, and where you were when that happened and when you heard about it. But the strange thing to me is not only do you remember the, the event, but for some events you do remember exactly where you were, when you experienced it. While most of the events I will relate to you this morning occurred before most of you were even born, 
I think some of them will be recognizable to you, and I can tell you that they're all absolutely true. For example, I was standing outside of the school auditorium at Bethel Park Junior High School with a radio in my ear when Bill Mazeroski hit his home run in the bottom of the ninth inning of the seventh game of the 1960 World Series to win the series. I can almost show you the exact spot on the sidewalk between building number one and building number two on the Bethel Park High School campus where I was standing when someone came up and told me that John F. Kennedy had been shot. I was sitting on the left side of the sofa in our game room listening to the radio when Franco Harris caught the ball on what has subsequently been dubbed the Immaculate Reception. And I remember walking into our house and seeing my parents sitting on the living room sofa looking like someone had died and having my mother hand me my induction notice into the United States Army. It was 7 p.m. on Thursday, November 28, 1968, one week short of six months after I graduated from Grove City College. Eleven months later, I was on my way to Vietnam. Yes, memories are strange, and I have some very vivid memories of the 11 months and 23 days that I spent in Vietnam, which I'd like to share with you this morning. My first memory was actually on the plane taking me and some 200 other soldiers from San Francisco, California, to Benoit, South Vietnam. The trip took almost 24 hours, and we flew in a charter plane from a commercial airline. So except for the length of the trip and the fact that all the passengers were dressed alike, wearing brand-new jungle fatigues, it would be similar to you flying from Pittsburgh to California. What I remember most about the flight wasn't the fashion statement that we were all making or the length of the flight. It was the last hour of the flight. Prior to that time, we were pretty loose and probably having a pretty good time, almost as good a time as I think 200 people your age can have, all wearing the same thing in a very confined area. But about an hour later, or about an hour before we landed, people looking out the window began to notice what appeared to be lightning in the sky. I remember someone saying, it must be raining because they saw lightning. I really couldn't see because I was sitting in the center aisle of the plane. But then suddenly, the plane was as quiet as this chapel is this morning. Because we all realized, without a word being spoken, that it wasn't lightning at all. We were in a war zone. My first vivid memory in Vietnam was sitting in buses from the Benoit Air Base, where we landed about seven miles to the Long Bin Army Base, where we were processed and assigned to different units within Vietnam. It was about 6 a.m. We rode through the streets of Benoit City, which is about 17 miles northeast of Saigon, and while there were people everywhere, even at 6 o'clock in the morning, and many shops were open and markets were bustling, what I remember most is the screens on the buses. You see, the buses weren't air-conditioned, but the screens weren't the kind of screens you have on your front door to keep flies from getting in your house. They were very thick, hard metal screens, and they were there to keep grenades from being tossed into our bus as we drove through the town. I remember, as if it were yesterday, lying on my bunk at the 20th Engineer Brigade headquarters on the Army base my first night there. 
A friend who had been with me in training in the States was assigned to the same unit, and we were sharing a cubicle in our hooch, our new home. We were lying there. I was reading, and he was writing a letter home. But we were also listening to every sound in the night. And there were very many strange and eerie sounds that night. In fact, every sound was strange and eerie that night. We heard a loud bang, and we both sat up straight as an arrow, wondering whether it was a rocket that was fired at us and whether we should jump under the bunk as we were told to do in training. But then we heard the guys down the hall that were playing cards. And we decided it must be okay because they'd been there for months and they weren't concerned. I did not sleep very well that night. I remember a few nights later when we actually did get fired upon about 5 a.m., This was the first of what would become almost weekly rocket attacks throughout my tour of duty. But what I remember most is the sound of our artillery unit, which was about 400 meters away, and it fired back in the direction that those shells came from for about 20 minutes. 105 howitzers at that range sound a lot like fireworks. Before I went to Vietnam, I used to like fireworks displays. Today, I only like to see them. My stomach ties in knots when I hear them. I remember the night about six months later when we were awakened twice during the night by incoming rounds that landed very close to our hooch. The next day we learned that the South Vietnamese artillery, our allies, had made a mistake and fired a few 105 howitzers in our direction. We had four dead and 20 wounded that night. I remember the day that Bob Hope and his group of entertainers came to Long Bin for a Christmas show. We drove to Long Bin, which was about, and waited for about four hours to get a seat in the, really in the back of a very open amphitheater. Guys were sitting in trees and climbing telephone poles to get better views. But the area in the front center of the seating area was reserved for people wearing blue bathrobes. These were the wounded well enough to get out of bed to go to the show. The show wasn't great. The jokes were pretty corny. But the fact that these entertainers came to give us a few hours of reprieve and release from the realities of war was incredible. What I remember most is the end of the show, with the women in the cast wearing either long white or red dresses and singing Silent Night with us. That image has been embedded in my mind every candlelight service I attend. When I look at the front of the church and see red and white poinsettias, and at the end of the service, we sing Silent Night. For many years, I had a very difficult time on the first verse of Silent Night, because sometimes it's pretty hard to sing when you have tears in your eyes and that memory in your mind. I remember the night about 30 days before I was to come home. I had driven to Tonsonute Air Base just outside Saigon to pick up a member of our unit who was returning from R&R. We had a new executive officer on our unit, and he decided to go with me for the ride. The flight we were to meet was late, and as a result, it was getting dark when we started to come back to Ben Law. We really were not supposed to be out on the road after dark. It was too dangerous. And about halfway back to Ben Law, our right back tire had a blowout. Being the best-equipped army in the world, we did have a good spare tire on the Jeep, and we did have a long grudge. 
but we did not have a jack. And as it was getting darker and darker, two of us stood at the back of the Jeep and tried to lift it so the third guy could slide the tire onto the, to the wheel. But we just couldn't lift it high enough. Suddenly, off in the near distance, we heard the sound of gunfire, M16s and AK-47s, very distinctive sounds. And we looked at each other, and two of us grabbed that bumper and lifted it off the ground. Third guy put the tire on the Jeep. It is incredible what fear and adrenaline can do to your body. I remember the day when I went with a few buddies to visit two of our guys who were injured in traffic accidents. They were in the evacuation hospital in Longden. Hospital wards were actually large Quonset huts with rows of hospital beds on either side of a fairly narrow aisle. There were four of us, and they only let two enlisted men in at a time, so two of us waited outside, and the other two went in. While I was standing outside waiting, two officers and a sergeant major went into the ward, obviously to visit one of their guys from their unit. Sergeant Major looked like an old war-worn warrior, and the number of stripes he had on his arm proved that's exactly what he was. But after about five minutes, the two officers were helping that Sergeant Major out of the building. He was as white as a ghost. His legs were like rubber bands. I cannot describe the trepidation that I had when it was my turn to enter to visit our friends. I won't begin to describe the sights I saw that day of men I passed who were there not because of traffic accidents, but because they were casualties of what war really is. It's not the sometimes glamorous and sanitized activity often portrayed in the movies, with the possible exception of the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. It is truly hell on earth. And as horrible as the scenes that we all have seen on television the last two days, they are nothing compared to the reality that the people in the World Trade Center and in the Pentagon and their families and immediate friends have had to endure the last two days. I remember visiting Washington, D.C. about 13 years ago and visiting the Vietnam Memorial, the wall, I do not have the ability to use the English language sufficiently to describe to you the emotional impact of that visit. I couldn't pick out specific names of people I knew who were memorialized on that incredible monument, but I could feel the pain of those men and women and their families. And I can appreciate the unbelievable sacrifice they have all made on behalf of this country, on behalf of you and me. You can believe what you want about Vietnam and what history tells you about whether we should have been there or shouldn't have. That's not a discussion for this morning. Because regardless of what you may believe about that, please don't ever forget the 58,192 names of people who were memorialized on that wall went to Vietnam because our country asked them to go and they didn't come back. I've discussed a number of memories, but I've saved for the end the memory that is most vivid and has made the greatest impression on me for the last 32 years. I have to start by telling you, with all due respect to Dr. Kielwetter, 
in his calling, and to any of you who may be related or know somebody who's an Army chaplain, that my impression of Army chaplains in 1969 was less than positive. It's not that they weren't men of God, nor that they were insincere about their faith, or even they were sort of lost, like Father Mulcahy on the old TV series MASH. In fact, unlike Father Mulcahy, almost every chaplain I met was a soldier first and a chaplain second. I understand why they were that way, but I really believe that their priorities were mixed up. They should have been chaplains first and soldiers second. I had been in Vietnam about four months, and that means four months of weekly incoming rockets and four months of preparing casualty reports for our brigade. And I went to our Sunday morning service. The colonel, our chaplain, began his sermon. He began by reciting a popular song of the day written by Burt Bacharach, and some of you may be familiar with it. It was what the world needs now is love, sweet love. The word's pretty simple. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing there's just too little of. We don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are rivers and moonbeams enough to last till the end of time. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing there's just too little of. Sitting in the middle of a war zone, in the next to the last row on the left side of the chapel, I thought to myself, he's absolutely right. War is hell. And if there were more love in this world, I probably wouldn't be here. You may be thinking this morning, if there were more love in this world, the World Trade Center towers may still be standing. I remember thinking that morning that this may be the first thing that he had said in four months that I truly believed and agreed with. But his next words were shocking to me. He said, that song is all wrong. And I said to myself, here we go again, this guy probably likes war. And then he said, what is my most vivid, my most vivid memory of Vietnam, the memory I've never forgotten, and I hope you'll remember this morning if you remember nothing else. He said, God provides all the love this world needs. All we have to do is reach up and accept it. God provides all the love this world needs. All we have to do is reach up and accept it. What a message, what an impact, what a truth. Just as I can't really express to you the impact of me of my visiting the wall, I really can't express to you the meaning to me of that very simple statement. But I can tell you it's true, and it's what I remember most about Vietnam. It's really easy to forget that message. Whether you're in a war zone, in a classroom, battling with your roommate, dealing with your boyfriend or girlfriend who just broke up with you, or dealing with any of life's tragedies such as we are this week. But the message is real, and I hope it stays with you as it has with me. Chapel is dismissed.